Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. This morning, I want to continue in the book of Romans, because I've been given the opportunity. But the question I want to ask this morning is, have you been rescued from the wrath of God? And many of you who have spent any considerable amount of time studying the Bible already know the answer to that question. Have you been rescued from the wrath of God? Well, this morning in Romans chapter 2, we will explore how to be rescued from the wrath of God. But in order for us to do that, we need to go back to the launching point of Paul's great letter to the Romans. So I'm going to backtrack again into chapter 1 as we did several Sundays last month. So I'm going to ask, some of us here are probably old enough to remember the big news and the excitement of our space program in the mid-1960s to the early 1970s. John Glenn orbiting the Earth, Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. Uh, All those great space missions were launched from Cape Canaveral in Florida. Now that kind of excitement was rekindled uh, uh, May 30th, uh, the year's going to elude me for a minute, uh, 2011 is when it was, and the Crew Dragon Endeavor was launched into orbit, and that was the first manned space flight from the United States since that time. So it was kind of a wonderful thing for individuals to watch. I don't know if you got to watch it. I did. And it was very, very exciting to see the program be reintroduced into our country. Now, we know that launches can be very important. And the launching point for Paul's letter to the Romans has to be Romans chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. There the apostle declared, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, then Paul went into great detail about the foolishness and wickedness that comes from rejecting God. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul said this, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And we went over this last month. We know that those professing to be wise look like fools. And now we know many examples of individuals who display this characteristic, do we not? Some of them are from the pulpit. Okay, not Pastor Martin. No pink slips in my box, please, all right? But understand that this is the society we live in. 
There are individuals who claim to know the truth. But they know nothing about the truth. They believe in themselves, not in the God that sent his son to die on the cross for us so that we may know the actual truth. And in Romans chapter 1, 29-32, Paul said that these ungodly people were being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, all evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Children, listen to this. Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Who's not guilty of any of this? You see, Paul focused mainly on the godless people of the Roman Empire. But now here in chapter 2, we're, we're starting to get some of that good news. Okay? So in chapter 2, Paul turned his attention to the religious people. And he was firstly addressing the Jews. William Barclay explained that in chapter 1, Paul had painted a terrible, grim picture of the idol-worshipping people of the Roman Empire. And we went through that for a month. In fact, I don't think people were very happy. <laughs> it was depressing, was it not? But how many people are willing to preach about sin? How many people are willing to recognize what's truly the problem in our lives? Sin has to be addressed. Sin has to be dealt with. God might be the judge of the pagans, but he was also the special protector of the Jews. But here, Paul forcefully pointed out that the Jews were just as much sinners as the Gentiles. So nobody was free of this sin. They were all guilty. And that when the Jews condemned the Gentiles, they were also condemning themselves. So let's not be like them and try to fool ourselves that we're not succumbing to this sin. Because we do. But now we must realize that Paul's warning was not just for the Jews who were trying to keep God's law. His warning is also for anyone who tries to live a moral life. That's us. I say that because the list of serious sins in Romans chapter 1 can tempt people to have a spiritual pride and a self-righteousness. Paul wants us to know that everyone from the best to the worst is in danger of the wrath of God. But thank the Lord, the Bible shows us how to be rescued from God's wrath. Please think about this as we read in Romans chapter 2. And as I get into the message this morning, this is all going to relay back to chapter 1. But no, we're starting to get the new, good news here. And beginning, we want to look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. Because it gives us the most important question in life. 
And you can underline this. It gives us the most important question in life. And that question, it's in your sermon notes there. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Now, this verse is referring to the great salvation that we can have through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. We have the great salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you have received the risen Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have been rescued from the wrath of God. And we can praise the Lord for that. Amen? Now, this morning's message should help us understand what this means because it highlights four spiritual changes people go through when they are rescued from the wrath of God. The first we recognize is our sinfulness. Now, this is Paul's hard lesson for all of us. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever judge another you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, you should know, it, it helps us to know that the word judge here is the same original word Jesus used in Matthew uh, chapter 7, verse 1, when he said, judge not that you be not judged. Paul was talking about us having judgmental, arrogant, hypercritical attitudes that make us out to be better than the person that we're judging. In other words, we're being a gossip. We're... We're, we're being all those things listed in Romans chapter 1. And not one of us is not guilty. So what do we do about that? Well, Paul gives us some great reasons to resist this kind of self-righteousness. First, because we know it's, hype, it's highly hypocritic, hypocritical. Sorry, Judging other people is highly hypocritical. That's what Paul was telling us in verse 1 when he said, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. So in short, you who judge others have done the very same kind of sinful things. When Paul wrote these words... He was looking at the long list of sins in chapter 1. And who among us has not struggled with those sins? Greed. Envy. Quarreling. Deception. Gossip. Slander. Pride. Being unloving. Being unmerciful. And what about being disobedient to parents. I know that's directed to our kids, but even as adults, we still respect our parents, do we not? I don't think anybody has missed that one. 
You see, we must resist judging other people because it is highly hypocritical, but also because it is above our ability. And that's what Paul is telling us in verse 2 when he says, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth, according to those who practice such things. God might be able to judge fairly, but we can't. So why do we try? God judges fairly. Would you say he judges your life fairly? I'd say he goes above and beyond fairness. But judging other people by outward appearance is very foolish. Harry Ironside told a story that reminds us of this truth. It happened when a bishop named Potter was sailing for Europe on one of the great ocean liners. When he got on board, Potter found out that another passenger was supposed to share a cabin with him. And after going to see his room, Potter went upstairs and asked if he could leave his gold watch and other valuables in the ship's safe. Now, he said he didn't ordinarily do that, but he had been to his cabin and didn't look... uh, the man didn't look like it was going to be a problem to do so. He didn't look untrustworthy. The crewman replied, that's all right, Bishop. The other man has already left his valuables up here for the same reason. We must resist judging other people because it's above our ability, but also because it is dangerously deceptive. It's really easy to fool yourself and it's really easy to fool others. This is one of the things that Paul pointed out in verse 3 when he asked, and do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So let me ask that question again. Have you escaped the judgment of God. And some of you might say, because some of you are lawyers at heart, that's not enough information. Well, let's get more information. When we judge other people, we can be deluded into thinking that we are good enough to earn our way into heaven. We might think, Well, I try to keep the Ten Commandments, and I've never murdered anybody. I know that I'm better than those hypocrites down at the church, and I'm a whole lot better than most people. Now, it sounds like crazy talk, but this is the actual conversations that are going through these people's heads. Not because they know any better, because they choose to think this way. Well, we may be better than other people, and we certainly ought to be, but that won't get us into heaven. God's standard for right living is total, underline that, total perfection. And no one has ever, ever lived up to that standard but Jesus Christ. For all of these reasons, we must humbly recognize our own sinfulness because it's one of the big changes we go through 
when we are rescued from the wrath of God. We have to go through that. We see this truth in verse 4, where Paul asks this key question. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? All of God's goodness is gently leading us to repent. Did you think we did this on our own? No. Good answer. No. God leads us gently. That's a good thing, because if it were me leading, I'd be like, come on, let's go. Okay? You would be dragging people because people drag their feet. But God knows this. He knows this about us. And so he approaches it in a way that is personal for us. He approaches it in a way that he knows he's going to get our ear. He gives us every opportunity to follow that. We all need to turn away from bad actions and attitudes. The first word Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 4 was, Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Paul Decker tells us that repentance means we have a necessary change of mind. Our views change. Our values and goals change. The way we live changes. Repentance means that we turn away from sin and turn from God. It doesn't feel like an obligation. It becomes something that your heart desires. We want to please God. We want to do the things that honor him. So how do we do that? We turn away from our sin. And not only that, we turn to God. Anybody in this room can confess that they are a Christian. But where's the fruit? Where's the action behind those words? Gordon MacDonald explained that repentance is not basically a religious word. It comes from a culture where people were essentially nomadic and lived in a world with no maps or street signs. And yes, no GPS. It is easy to get lost walking through the desert. You, you become aware that the countryside is strange. You finally say to yourself, I'm going in the wrong direction. That's the first act of repentance. Admitting that you're going the wrong way. Gentlemen, admitting to your wife that you need help with directions. Admitting to God that your life does not demonstrate one that is honoring to him. That's the first step in repentance. How does this crucial change of mind happen? It all has to do with the goodness of God. Paul said, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. And it works in our hearts two ways here. 
First, when we look into God's word and see his infinite goodness, we begin to see how sinful we really are. And we long to turn away from the evil in our lives. But when we see God's goodness, we are also drawn to his merciful kindness, his love, his compassion. So we repent. And we must repent. It's one of the spiritual changes that we go through when we are rescued from the wrath of God. But we also begin to rely upon God. We will never be rescued from the wrath of God until we begin to rely on God our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the good news is that we can always rely upon God. In verses 2 through 5, they help us see that reason. And that reason is because God is righteous. Verse 2 tells us that the judgment of God is true. And verse 5 tells us that his judgment is righteous. And again in verse 4, Paul tells us that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. Think about God's goodness. God is good all the time, amen? His goodness is perfect in every way. Psalm 33, 5 tells us that the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. I repeat that. The earth is full of goodness from the Lord. We, as individuals, have a tendency to look at the negative. Like we could look around this morning and say, boy, church is really low this morning. And it doesn't matter the reason. But we can look at that negatively and say, oh boy, maybe it's not worth doing it. I tell you, I've had the experience of preaching to a crowd of five and a crowd of over 1,300. It makes no difference. Because someone here can benefit from the goodness of God. And so, as Christians, we do the thing that seems easy, but it is difficult for many. And that is, we show up. We rely upon God. We let God sort things out. We don't stick to our own devices. We let God sort this out. We know that the Lord is rich in salvation because Romans 10 says the same Lord over all is rich unto all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He is also rich in grace because in Ephesians chapter 1, in him that is in Jesus... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, and according to the riches of his grace. God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. 
We can fully rely upon God because he is righteous and because he is rich. Our God, the only true and living God, is rich beyond compare. Ultimately, everything belongs to him. On February 13, 2004, astronomers at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics discovered a white dwarf star in the constellation Centaurus. This star has a diamond core, that's right, diamond core, that is 2,500 miles across. That diamond weighs 5 million trillion trillion pounds. And it measures about 10 billion trillion trillion carats. That's a one followed by 34 zeros. That's more riches than we can comprehend. And that's just a speck of the material wealth that belongs to the Lord. But all of God's material wealth is a drop in the ocean compared to the spiritual riches he gives to everyone who trusts in Christ Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus left all the riches of heaven to become a man. He left all the riches of heaven for us. No one has ever given more than Jesus. He took all the suffering for our sins when he died on that cross for us. That's why we can fully rely on our risen Savior and we must. It's the biggest spiritual change we go through to be rescued from the wrath of God. But then we should also reflect our relationship with Christ. I say that because real salvation will always make a difference in the way that we live. We see this truth in verses 6 and 11 where Paul tells us that God will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. You can be rich. You can be poor. It does not matter to God. He loves us the same. If you read this scripture in isolation, you might get the wrong idea that we can be saved by our good works. But in the next chapter, Paul makes the strongest case that no one can be saved by their good works. The reason why is because God's standard for good works 
is his own glorious perfection. And the only person who ever lived up to that standard was Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So our good works can never be the cause of our salvation, but they should always be the result of our salvation. Paul made this truth clear in Ephesians chapter 2, where he tells Christians, By grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Real salvation will always make a difference in the way we live. I'm not saying that we'll be perfect in this world. That's clearly obvious. Paul never claimed to be perfect. Paul talked about his personal struggle with sin. And at the time, Paul was near the end of his third missionary journey. So he had been following Jesus for many years. But in Romans chapter 7, Paul said, The good that I will do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. So later on in life, Paul declares and describes himself with these words in Philippians chapter 3. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after. If that I may apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Jesus Christ. Brethren, I count myself to have uh, apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Paul is saying, you can leave your baggage at the door. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you did, what you will do. Grasp to the things that Christ has given for us. Grasp to the things that you can control, which is close to nothing. But when we cling to Jesus Christ, we have everything. God wants our faith to show up in our works as well as our words. Know that. We're not saved by our works, but through our good works, we can make God evident. He can shine through us. Melvin Shelton told about a youth meeting where the students were talking about this scripture, you are the salt of the earth. They talked about the meaning of this verse and the leader asked them to talk about different uses of salt. There were several good answers. Salt gives flavor to food. Salt preserves food to keep it from spoiling. Then one girl said, salt makes you thirsty. And everybody got quiet as they began to ask themselves, have I ever made anyone thirsty for Jesus Christ? That's the kind of people God wants us to be. We need to make people thirsty. People who reflect the reality of of our relationship with Jesus Christ. When we walk out those doors, do people know that you know Christ? 
Are you being salty? Are people craving to know what you know? To live the life that you live? Or do they have no clue? Or no inclination that you even know our Savior Jesus Christ? And so this morning I leave you with these questions. Have you been rescued from the wrath of God? Have you recognized your sinfulness before the perfectly righteous and holy God? Have you recognized that you deserve the wrath of God? Have you repented? Has your mind been changed by the goodness, the kindness, and patience of God? Are you willing to rely on God to forgive you through the sacrifice Jesus Christ made on the cross for your sins? Are you willing to receive the risen Christ as your Lord and Savior? And is your life beginning to reflect the reality of your relationship with Christ? As we'll go to God in prayer, David's going to come and lead us in a song of worship. But I pray that you take these questions this week and you analyze where you stand. Not because the preacher told you to do so, but do it because that's what God is calling into the, your heart. He's calling you to do a little soul searching. Am I being salty enough? Am I bringing others to Christ? Is Christ even evident in my life? And if it's not, just like David talked about earlier, that's okay. We go through periods of life where it's not always a bed of roses. But we have a God who allows us to come back to him time and time again because he loves us because he will always love us and we can always 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 rely upon God David Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. I pray, Lord, as we leave these doors, that we will continue to be a shining light for your glory. Lord, we ask a special prayer for those who are not feeling well. We ask that you bring them back to health, that the Holy Indwelling Spirit will be with them to give them the needs that they are needing at the moment, Lord. Again, thank you for our time. Bless us as we go. We love you, Lord. And all the things that we say and do, we hope that it is an honor to you. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. 
The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.